0: Ladies and gentlemen, as The Vincast is a podcast you uh, can listen to free of charge, uh, it really does rely upon the support of some of the sponsors of the show, like Different Drop, uh, online wine retailers based in Sydney who specialise in Australian wines uh, that usually come from small vineyards, small producers using exciting techniques. Um, In fact, uh, my guest for this week's episode, You can actually buy his 2013 Chardonnay for only $35, which uh, which is fantastic to because these are the kind of wines that uh, you aren't able to find in lots of different places, so they can be a bit harder to find. So uh, Different Drop make it much easier by sourcing these really uh, beautiful small batch wines. Uh, and as a special treat for listeners of the Vincast, if you make sure to enter the code IntrepidWino, one word, at purchase, you'll get a 10% discount on any purchase from Different Drop. Uh, and make sure that in the feedback you let them know that you heard about the, the, their website via the Vincast. So thanks very much uh, for your support of the Vincast for all these great Australian winemakers and um, for Different Drop. On episode 80 of the Vincast, I chat with Alex Byrne, a young winemaker originally from Ballarat, who is involved with a number of projects, including his own wines, uh, the Byrne wines, and also Noisy Ritual. There, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and as always, it is lovely to have you on board. I hope you have been enjoying uh, the uh, the summer. Depending on where you are, you might have had some. Uh, It's a pretty mixed weather, which uh, certainly is making things interesting for the upcoming vintage. Uh, The harvest is um, imminently starting, so uh, it's an opportunity for you to head out to some of the wine regions and visit the wineries to see what it's like to see one of these uh, facilities during the harvesting and processing period. So it can be very interesting. So some of the the guests of the podcast you might have heard uh, want to go and visit their wineries uh, on a weekend uh, and see it in action because it's a great way to learn. My guest for this week's episode of The Vincast is Alex Byrne, a very young and exciting winemaker, originally from Ballarat in Western Victoria. He has worked for many years at um, Lethbridge Wines down in Geelong and also has been producing some wines under his own label, uh, Byrne Wines. He's also more recently got involved with the Noisy Ritual program, which is a a really fantastic urban winery project that uh, you can actually get involved with becoming a member for the 2016 Harvest and you can make some wines um, with other people. Uh, So if you would like to find out more, um, listen to the end of the episode where you can uh, find out um, the details about how to get in touch with Noisy Ritual. There's actually going to be a bonus for listeners of the Vincast uh, when you want to join the Noisy Ritual program. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I'll see you on the other side. Alex, uh, welcome to Vincast Central. Thank you for making some time in the lead up to the 2016 vintage. Oh, Thanks for having me. And um, as I start every episode, I'm going to ask you if you can remember the first time you interacted with wine that made you think of it in a different way and um, made you think that you might want to pursue a career in wine.
1: Uh, Well, I was selling wine a bit um, when I was first out of home and, you know, I had a few different jobs in bottle shops and that sort of thing, but... I didn't really have a great interest in wine. Um, I'd also worked in vineyards when I was younger and I studied agriculture, but it wasn't really until I worked in a winery during vintage just uh, to help some friends. I needed some work. They needed someone to help. So I went to Dominique Porte in the Arrow Valley in 2002 Mm -hmm. uh, and did a vintage with them there and uh, just got under my skin. Are you, whereabouts are you from? Ballarat. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. You, your your parents weren't involved with wine, or were they were they wine drinkers at all? Ah, uh, yeah, but you know, not not a huge amount, not a specific interest or anything. Just you know, kind of casual wine drinkers. Yeah. And, um. But I went to school with Benjamin Porte for a while, and oh, okay. when his dad Dominique was at Teltani uh, in the Pyrenees. Right. I was I was gonna say. Wait, wasn't that Yarra Valley? Put, no, a bit before that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, so I used to spend quite a few weekends out in the vineyard playing around with him. And, you know, then I... That
0: sort of normalized you a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think so. And uh, I did a little bit of work here and there on the disgorging line that they had. Yeah, of course. Different things just because I was around, I was kind of involved, but... Um, you know, as far as being a person who didn't have a lot of exposure to wine, uh, it took until I was in my 20s that I really had an interest in tasting wine and thinking about wine, really.
0: Yeah, but you'd worked a little bit in terms of selling some wine and you'd done some odd jobs here and there. What your know, late teens, early twenties, that kind of thing? You'd done some studies in agricultural science
1: as well. Uh, yeah. While I was in VCE, I was also studying agriculture and horticulture at TAFE. Okay. So that was where I first actually did proper work in the vineyard when I was seventeen, and I did a week long stint at Teltani, helping in the vineyard, doing you know the whole range of jobs that was happening at that time, and so uh, that was the first work work that I did really in the industry but that was still a few years before I started working in bottle shops and even then uh I was selling wine quite a bit but I had no idea what I was selling sure so yeah yeah
0: you had just sort of covered the fundamentals and that was enough yeah yeah was there any particular reason why you wanted you started studying ag science at
1: TAFE uh I always liked farming. I always liked the outdoors and I didn't really like the idea of spending my life in an office. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, My mum claims that she told me at a young age that I should be a winemaker, but I have no recollection of that. Um, But then just with the sort of vague idea that I liked farming, we didn't have any farmers in the family or anything so you know it's difficult when you're not from that that kind of a background to get heavily involved in it Mm. so it took a while and you know there was a bit of trial and error but um yeah then once I did that first vintage and you know like all vintage work it's intense it's seven days a week it's 12 hours a day it's messy and hard work but I just loved it. I loved the variety of jobs, the variety of, you know, things to think about from the vineyard all the way through the winery, the science aspects of it and the practical aspects, the mechanical aspects of the equipment that you use, Mm -hmm. everything, all the way through to the finished product, which, you know, can then be a special thing that somebody might, keep for a long time and cherish and open on a special occasion it's you know such a broad sort of spectrum of of involvement that you have when you're a winemaker did you have the opportunity whilst you were
0: uh, working vintage to kind of you know taste the fruit as it was coming in and you know muck in with all the different kind of um, activities in the winery or was it largely you know a lot of observation
1: Um, no, there's always, everywhere that I've ever worked has been small and medium-sized wineries. And so I, I've found in all my experience, you know, if you're interested and you want to taste the fruit and you want to learn every part of the process, generally the winemakers are more than happy to let you. And so, you know, I really got to see everything, I got to do everything and, and then start to learn about actually appreciating wine and analysing wine and, and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, where were you? This was uh, Dominic Porte in the Yarra Valley. That was in the Yarra Valley. In 2002 was the first vintage that they had their own winery in the Yarra Valley. So, were you, so you, you were staying there? Were you staying there? Uh, no, the- I was commuting. Uh, I wow. was living in Melbourne still, and I always have. I've been commuting to Lethbridge for the last seven years from mm-hmm, Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of a part of the winemaking lifestyle that is appealing as well, that you can be a farmer during the day and you can be going to nice restaurants at night and, you know. Well, There's
0: nice restaurants out in the wine regions as well.
1: Well, uh, in some more recent, regions, more in recently, some wine regions, yeah. Yeah, in yeah,
0: uh, Mornington Peninsula, you know, yeah, probably good examples of it.
1: Yeah, in the Yarra when I was there, it was really, you know, just starting to take off at that stage. Yeah. And in Geelong in the last seven or so years that I've been there, it's just come along in leaps and bounds. Mm. Absolutely. So um, what was it? Was it anything
0: particular about that first vintage experience that kind of got you hooked and made you want to kind of continue a career in wine?
1: Uh, I, I really don't know. I think it's kind of the whole the whole spectrum of things and how they combine the fact that every day you can do so many varied tasks and every season you do so many varied tasks. And, and now the way that I am making wine at the moment, you know, it's not just from a single place. It could be, it almost could be from anywhere in the world these days. If you wanted to try and make wine, you know, simultaneously in different regions you can. Mm -hmm. And so the the choices are just endless. So what was the kind of the the first
0: step, I guess, after the vintage to kind of follow that career path?
1: Uh, Well, I was studying journalism at the time. Really? Yeah, which was something else that I was always really interested in and literature, but um, I... So I finished. I saw out slightly the year. more job
0: job dependency, reliability, I guess in the, in the wine industry. <laughs> Even though it's not one of the better ones, but compared to journalism and and and, and writing,
1: yeah, and that it does take a lot of self motivation to be a journalist, I think. And um, where you know you can be every day, really having to to motivate yourself mm. and work by yourself a lot. And I find that having you know a lot of what we do is controlled by the seasons and so you often don't have a choice you just have to get up really early and work all day and it's not going to do itself yeah yeah, so and i find it easier to not have to be self-motivated in that way um but i still you know i still really uh find the idea of journalism a, a great thing and maybe one day something i'd like to try but um I only finished that first year of when I was studying journalism, and during that time, I started putting my plan together for for studying winemaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looked like it wasn't going to happen easily because I did an interview at Deakin. They were starting the winemaking course in Geelong at Deakin, yeah, uh, which was an awesome course, and I interviewed for it. And they said, "Well, you've never studied any science at high school, so." Uh, you, how do you you're expect, you're expect you're to make some wine, prereqs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so I kind of forgot about it, and then when the results came out, I didn't even look at them, and until my mum rang me and said, "Do you know that you've got into the winemaking course?" <laughs> so that was just just really fortunate. They had enough people applying who were mature age and who didn't have the prerequisites, but they had the enthusiasm. Sure. So they did like, you know, catch up chemistry classes and, and, you know, I, most of the people, because they were a bit older and knew that that's what they really wanted to do, they had the motivation and, and a lot of us, you know, finished that course really quickly and became winemakers from that course. Were you commuting down to Geelong from Melbourne still? Uh, no. When I was at uni, I was living in Geelong and in Torquay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it wasn't quite as much commuting going on then. Uh, and were you working at the same time you were studying? Uh, yeah, I was working in a local bottle shop in Geelong. Okay. Um, and the course was really practical as well. So there was a vineyard and a winery at the university uh, at Warren Ponds. Okay. Uh and that course only lasted about 6 years unfortunately because it was an amazing course and mm. they had great all the like amazing equipment and everything but uh the bureaucracy didn't really like it and it didn't make enough money for the winery. So mm. uh for the, for the university, sorry. Yeah, yeah so unfortunately
0: they, that seems to be, you know, what's most important these days is how much is it, how much money is it bringing in.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so that's really unfortunate. Mm. Um but Uh, it was also, so we got to work in the vineyard while we were studying, we got to work in the winery while we were studying and in the labs, you know, doing wine analysis as opposed to just the standard chemistry that we were also doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we had, we were allowed time to do vintages while we were at uni as well. That's good. Yeah. So I did a vintage in Margaret River. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's another great thing about being a winemaker is just, you know, the ability. One of the appealing things to me early on was the ability to work in such a such a wide range of areas, regions, mm. and, and use it as sku- an opportunity the, to travel. The skills in terms of winemaking and viticulture are so easily transferable to, you know, wine regions all over the world. Yeah, even in places where you don't speak the language, I, I've done three vintages in France, and I speak terrible, terrible French, mm-hmm. if at all. Uh, and but yeah, it is such a similar thing that that you know you can you can do that. How long did the course take? Uh, it was a four-year bachelor of science, full time. Okay, yeah, full time. But then yeah, there was a one term in the second year, which was a vintage term. Mm-hmm. And then in the fourth year, it was all by correspondence. Yeah, okay. So I also did a vintage in the fourth year. Where where did you do that? Uh, that was in, in the Rhone Valley.
0: Fantastic.
1: Yeah. So had you done any travel overseas up to that point? Uh, no, the first visit I had overseas was uh while i was studying winemaking after my first year of studying winemaking and i went to france and germany and and visited wine regions and you know that really helps to to fire up the passion when you you see these kind of places and and the kind of wines that the world has on offer it's like a painter going over
0: to, to, to Paris and and London and, you know, Berlin going to some of these amazing galleries and looking at, you know, these are huge, great collections of, of art and just getting so inspired and then coming home and going, oh, I see I see the world in such a different way. You know, I, that was certainly my experience mm. v- traveling around uh, other parts of the world, visiting wineries and wine regions and kind of thinking about Australia in such a different way.
1: Oh, definitely. And for me, in uh, the f- following vintage I did after the Rhone was in Burgundy Mm -hmm. and that was in 2008 and when I came home uh I was obsessed with making Burgundian type wines and I realized that the cool climate where I'd grown up in Ballarat was perfect for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and uh was you know underappreciated even though there are some really good vineyards around Ballarat there's not very many and they're not very big but the fruit that they produce is is great for making cool climate Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in a way that not many places on mainland Australia are in my opinion so I was actually drawn back to Ballarat where I'd spent many, many years trying to get away from mm. before I started studying winemaking. <laughs> that must have been but, great
0: to get a newfound appreciation for essentially your home area.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so now since two thousand and nine or two thousand and nine I started trying to source fruit in Ballarat. Two thousand and ten I made my first Chardonnay and Pinot Noir from Ballarat and I've been doing it ever since. Mm. How did you find um, the experience working in, in, in
0: Europe? As far as the vintage experience, as far like, you, were you staying with other cellar um, hands um, during that, that that harvesting period?
1: Yeah, in the first instance in the Rhone Valley, I was uh, at Chapoutier, and they have a you know quite a big production. Uh, even though it's quite traditionally made. Is this this is in Tandemitage? Yeah. 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 And so we had, uh, we were living on site with, there was me and another Australian and a Kiwi and a few French people. And so it was a really great way to meet all these other young people who were doing similar things and, you know, and to share that experience and learn from them and everything. Mm-hmm. Um and, yeah, I mean, as, as we were sort of saying before, the winemaking is not that different in terms of, you know, how wine is made uh, from Australia to France. But to be able to see the slight differences in techniques and to be able to see the vineyards and the fruit that comes in and, and to get all these different perspectives on it, you know, it does, it does have a big influence. At what point did you sort of start to
0: like taste lots of wines and kind of explore the difference between regions and and varieties and that kind of thing? Like, was it um, b- before that first um, vintage experience, or was it whilst you were studying?
1: Uh, at university, we did a lot of tastings, and they were they were you know quite varied, and they usually had a theme. And so uh, we, that sort of started to open my eyes to different regions, different varieties, and different styles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think at that time my palate was pretty immature. Sure. And so, yeah, I was, I think – but that sort of seems to happen with most people. You start off drinking things that, you know, are more approachable and – You're less, slightly more familiar with. Yeah. And then you, if you keep – Practicing like I do, and you keep, you know, checking out different different regions or different styles, and then you gradually broaden your your palate a bit like that. Because I'm just interested to to.
0: The, 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 the find out if there was any particular reason that you said, I'd like to go and work a vintage in Margaret River or I'd like to go and work a vintage in the Rhone Valley or or in Burgundy, that kind of thing. If if there was a particular influence of wines from those places or stylistically the wines that they produced that you kind of had a a connection with.
1: Uh, I think probably when I went to Margaret River, I was still pretty young and I just thought Margaret River would be a cool place to go. Were Uh, Were you into surfing at all? Uh, I, I was a little bit, but I ended up working a 12 hour night shift the whole time during vintage when I was over there. So I didn't really even see very much of Margaret River, (laughs) but you know, it was still a really good experience and learning about the, another side of winemaking being on a 12 hour night shift and, and, uh, it's not something that I've ever had to do since but you know in a, in a way i'm glad that i did it and i i have that experience mm-hmm. um so that was that was more like yeah I was a bit naive and I thought I'd be able to make a holiday out of it and it didn't really turn out like that when I went to Margaret River. <laughs> Did you possibly like the idea of, oh, let's, I'm going to go on the opposite side of the country. That that sounds cool. Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. You know, it was just a good excuse to go to the other side of the country in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I knew they had great wine there as well, so it wasn't, you know, outrageous to make that decision, but it still was pretty uninformed, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, yeah, when I went to the Rhone, it was – at that time, I was really into Shiraz, and so it seemed like a logical place to go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then the following year, I was starting to get really into Pinot, and so, you know, going to Burgundy seemed like a logical step as well. How did you, how did you get the gig in Burgundy? Uh, through, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> I don't know. No. <laughs> so, yeah, so. Um, was that after you'd finished the studies? Uh, yeah, I was still studying while I was in the Rhone, but then I traveled for a little while after that, when I, I graduated, I was traveling overseas when I graduated from uni. And then I decided I came home briefly and I decided that I just had to go back and do another vintage over there. So I, uh, I got a scholarship to do, to help cover the expenses of doing that vintage. Yeah. Okay. And so. Yeah, that made it possible for me to go back to Europe and do that vintage in Burgundy.
0: So what was the kind of the, the first, I guess, serious gig <laughs> um, coming home to Australia after Burgundy?
1: Uh, when I came home, I was really lucky. I came home in December and I found out uh, pretty soon after I returned that there might be a job available at Lethbridge mm-hmm. and uh, so I went and... And sussed it out and met Ray and Marie and talked to them about it. And uh, for me, you know, it was just an amazing possibility. I th- I thought I had always liked the wines from Lethbridge when I was studying in Geelong. And uh, I, I always preferred smaller wineries who did, you know, interesting things, but also where you could do every part sure. of the job. Sure, sure.
0: And so I just like that that first vintage experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so they said, okay, well, you can do vintage here in two thousand and nine. And I said, can I also make a little wine of my own on the side? And they let me, which was amazing. So that's where you know my actual wine making for myself began. That's where the burn story starts. Yeah, and then when vintage was over, they they said, you know let's try and make this work as a permanent gig. And it did. So I was there for about, almost seven years.
0: Do you think that it helped getting the job at Lethbridge that you'd just come back from working the vintage in Burgundy and, and you know, they make you know beautiful Chardonnay and Pinot?
1: Oh, I think it did, yeah. I think even though I was young and inexperienced to a large degree, the fact that I had just been in Burgundy and that I was – Really interested in making Chardonnay and Pinot, and I was, you know, trying to f- find my own way to do that for myself. So that showed the the sort of depth of my enthusiasm for it. I think that definitely would have helped Ray and Marie to make that decision. It's exactly like you know applying for deacon. That the enthusiasm,
0: even though that uh, they would argue that there's a, like very little experience there, mm. that the enthusiasm, you know, would make you a, a better investment. I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think – and I guess that's something that I've seen a lot of in the wine industry where if you really, you know, have that enthusiasm, you can do do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great winemakers in Australia who have never studied winemaking, but they make amazing wine and, and you know, they are great winemakers in every way. Yeah. So I think that's – that's something that there's a bit of a history of in Australia, in Australian winemaking. The can do spirit. Yeah.
0: <laughs> if you enjoy listening to the casual discussions had on the Vincast, but want to get a little bit more in depth as far as the wine information, uh, I have to recommend the Wine Companion website, winecompanion.com.au. Uh, on that website, not only are you going to find information about wine producers and vintage from all over the country, but you're also going to find some really fantastic articles, things like buying guides or um, wine and food matching or predicting what trends are going to be in wine. So um, as a special thank you to subscribers of this podcast, Wine Companion have generously offered a, a special deal when you enter the code INTREPID30 Uh, at at purchase of any subscription package. They'll give you a 30% discount, which is a huge saving. And trust me, you get access to so much valuable information. So I uh, would suggest going to the Wine Companion website, check it out, uh, and and see for yourself. That is a fantastic resource. And thanks for your support of the podcast. So what was the first... Kind of little um, wine that you made uh, that that first year in two thousand nine.
1: Uh, I made a little batch of Geelong Pinot, sure, that I got from the Ballerine Peninsula from Lura Park Estate, mm-hmm. and um, I I you know wanted to really make my mark. I wanted to make a world class Pinot. Very ambitious. Yeah, uh, uh, I don't think that I really did that, but I uh you know I, I wanted it to be to be my wine i wanted it to have my sort of wine making imprint on it and yeah. um so you know there was some good advice that i was given by people that i completely ignored and uh i made some mistakes and i that wine could have at one or two points could have gone down the drain but we managed to to pull it together and uh, I think I still have a little bit of it, and I think it's it's not a bad wine it's certainly not a world class wine but <laughs> uh you know it's all right and I think making mistakes and trying new things and you know trying to find the edges of the possibilities is still something that that we're all doing in in the Australian sort of wine industry. Of course. Yeah, and so that's another great part about it, the fact that there are still possibilities to do new things and and always to try and improve what you're doing.
0: And that sort of is the exciting thing about just sort of buying a bit of fruit and kind of seeing what you can do because that's kind of really the only way that you can do it these days. It's not, you know, land and, you know, equipment is very, very expensive to kind of just invest in, in the hopes that you can get, you know, a, a good vineyard producing good fruit and know how to express it in the best possible way.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it takes a long time. It takes a long time for the vines to be at the age where they can have their best expression, and it takes a long time for a winemaker to to you know be that familiar with a specific site to be able to to establish that relationship. Yeah, yeah. So it's not easy, uh, and that's why I think you know, it's so important to try to maintain those relationships like I have with the Myola Vineyard where my burned fruit all comes from and it has since 2010. Um, and I still feel like I'm learning how the vineyard expresses itself and, you know, there's no such thing as a normal vintage. Sure. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's all part of the fun but – uh it, it is, yeah, definitely the way that a lot of the young winemakers now are doing it where they don't own vineyards or own wineries in a lot of instances uh, unless they have been lucky enough to have a family that already was in the industry. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like our good friend Owen.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's still – they they have been making wine from their property for just over 30 years and mm. it's still getting better. Better and better. Yeah. so.
0: So it was always your intention speaking of Ballarat. It was always your intention to to source Ballarat grown fruit to make your burn
1: wine. It was, yeah, yeah, because I just, you know, I had a had a moment of clarity and yeah. I decided that that Ballarat was an underappreciated place for wine in Australia and and in the world and that it made sense for lots of reasons that I wanted to make Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, that I should source it from Ballarat. And so how did you go about that? How did you go about trying to find some fruit? Um, I tried everything I could think of. I I mean, I was lucky enough to know uh, the ladders, and they were in Ballarat making wine, and they've had a big influence in the Ballarat wine region for yep. a long time, forever, really. Um, so that was that was great for me. They actually helped me to source the fruit that I do have. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also put the word out to the local, you know, wine groups or anyone I could think of who may know how I could get in touch with people who'd be selling fruit or, you know, having vineyards around Ballarat. Yeah. And I'm still, still there, still trying to to meet new people and get fruit from new vineyards. And it's, yeah, but it's like a lot of these places where you have really good fruit, it's always hard to find more. So for the last five, and this is coming
0: up on the sixth vintage, uh, you've been buying Ballarat fruit. Where do you actually make the wine?
1: Uh, all All the wines I've made have been made at Lethbridge.
0: Right. Okay. So, so the, the grapes are transported down
1: to Geelong. Yeah. And you're making them there. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know it's not that far from Ballarat to Lethbridge. Um. So it's it's always been relatively it's almost easy. directly south, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And Lethbridge <laughs> is like on the northern edge of the Geelong wine region. Right. So yeah, it's you know it was just fortunate for me to be there and to be getting fruit from Ballarat that it all kind of worked out.
0: Is there a particular philosophy that you kind of follow as
1: far as the winemaking? Yeah, it's always fairly minimal intervention. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of catchphrases that I'd prefer to avoid in that are common in this type of winemaking. But yeah, it's, it's pretty hands off and to, you know, to try and just allow the fruit to express itself in the best possible way and just monitor it really closely and carefully and hope that I don't have to intervene. Sure. So that's that's basically how I do it. And I think that's how lots of great winemakers work. Yeah. Uh it's certainly something that I learnt a lot about at Lethbridge. So um that's always been pretty helpful and and that just, you know, keeping it simple, having really great fruit and keeping it simple is really the, the sort of core of the whole process.
0: So um, what what wines are you currently, you know, making or what, what have you got available as far as burn
1: wines? Um, I In 2015, uh, it's grown a little bit from being just the Ballarat Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. I've released some sparkling as well, which was made from Ballarat Chardonnay, but it's been... Uh, it's been on tirage for since 2011 and now just disgorged and released in the last couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. So that's added, uh, to the burn lineup. Uh, it's only very small amounts, but uh, it's something, you know, a lot of those vineyards around Ballarat were planted to make sparkling. Yeah. And often, especially in 2011, when I made that wine and it was the coldest growing season for a long time, um, it was great. It was, it, the growing degree days, the climate in that season was actually very, very similar to Champagne. So Mm, it mm. just kind of made sense to make a bit of sparkling then. Um, And I've also made a Sunbury Chardonnay in 2015, which has just come out. And uh, now I'm about to make a second Pinot as well in 2016, which is from Macedon.
0: Oh, far out. So...
1: Uh, since being sort of trying to find more fruit around Ballarat for a few years and not having a lot of luck, I've s- gone a bit further afield. Uh, and I think that the Macedon area is is very similar to Ballarat in a lot of ways, it being higher altitude, really, you know, great uh, cool climate, mm. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay growing area. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully some great wine can be made from there for burn wines as well how did how, how did the noisy ritual story come about uh, well my mate cam moved into a house in thornbury yeah and the first time that i went to visit him he was showing me all around and he said i oh, come and have a look in the basement and there he said oh we never saw her in here when we did the inspection on the rental property but now we have the keys we can have a look down in the basement and we went down and there was a concrete tank in the corner and it had a little valve at the base and it had a lot of stuff on top of it so we moved the stuff off because i said looks a bit like a wine tank Mm. and uh we took all the stuff off the top and the inside was wax lined wow you know as a lot of concrete wine fermenters are and so i said that's definitely a wine tank it was you know the the basement was set up for for people who were producing their own foods obviously and and there was a lot of fruit trees around and those kind of environments where people have been making food and wine and things in their backyard for a long time in you know in the northern suburbs of melbourne italian possibly (laughs) could be yeah well cam has actually since met uh, the family who had that house and yeah learned all the history of their winemaking in in the basement there. But in 2014, we just decided that we had to make some wine there. Mm. So we got half a ton of Shiraz and a bunch of mates, and we all pitched in and decided to make some wine together. And so communal wine. Yeah, and we it was all very much by hand, small scale, you know, just figuring it out as we went along. And it was just a heap of fun. We, we had Barbies, you know, we were, everyone was getting in, stomping the grapes and having a great time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so much that we decided that we should make another batch. So when that one was pressed and put into an old barrel, uh, we got another batch of Shiraz and, and a, a bigger group of friends because everybody that we'd been telling it about, you know, about what we were doing wanted to get involved. Yeah, I want to be like the cool kids. I want to get involved with <laughs> in that. Yeah. So we we did a second batch. We had, you know, more sort of little backyard parties and, and then it just grew from there. Everyone we talked to about it was so interested and, and, you know, wanted to know how they could do it. And so we thought, well, maybe we should try and, grow this into something a bit bigger and so at the end of uh, 2014 we did the crowdfunding campaign because we didn't have any money and we didn't know how to get the space we would need we couldn't fit very many people in cam's basement mm-hmm. um so cam and sam our other partner who we started noisy ritual with and myself um did the crowdfunding campaign Mostly Cam because I was in France doing vintage and Sam was in America doing vintage. But uh, it it was successful. And so we raised enough money to set up a pop-up winery in a warehouse in Preston. And we made five batches of red wine and uh, each batch had a group of members with it that followed the process all the way through and did the same thing that we'd done in the basement as, you know, people starting from having no experience whatsoever just making wine, and, you know, Sam and I were there with our experience to help, but um, I think the, the sort of exciting part about it is that people can just start from scratch and make wine and the, the energy that, that it creates, having groups of people doing that is amazing, even in the middle of vintage when we were exhausted – the, they would sort of fire us up and we'd get, you Again, know, just re-enthused. Com, com, coming back to that enthusiasm. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, apart from that kind of that communal aspect and the, the kind of fun atmosphere um, that you were trying to create and getting people kind of involved, was there any other particular reason why you liked the idea of Noisy Ritual? Did you kind of come out – did you have the idea of people learning and people who had, as you say, no experience with with winemaking but just a lot of enthusiasm could kind of maybe learn something?
1: Yeah, well, that was uh, from Cam's experience because he had no experience whatsoever of making wine when we started at his house – But because Sam and I were both working full-time during vintage at our real jobs, he was making wine over the phone and he was learning, you know, when we would use a term that he didn't understand, he would look it up and he would figure it out and he would be tasting every day and smelling every day and, you know, telling us what he was tasting and smelling and we were telling him what it meant or what to look out for and he just said, His experience of of learning so quickly and having so much fun doing it was why he thought. Well, I reckon a lot of other people would like to do this as well.
0: Yeah. Mm. So how does it actually work? Uh, I mean, we're heading towards two thousand and sixteen vintage, as we said at the start, um, and no doubt, you know, you are looking for 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 people to you know get involved with it. How how does it actually work? Do you buy a membership?
1: yep uh, we're selling memberships at the moment on our website for the 2016 vintage and uh, so there'll be I think probably six groups of members which is usually about 25 to 30 people in a group and so from the 20th of February we'll be receiving fruit mm-hmm. uh, so and then in the weekends following that we'll each weekend we'll be trying to if the weather permits have a batch of fruit coming in every weekend wow uh and so we start with the fruit receival the members are there we bring the bins of fruit in and they sort the fruit they take out any any mog which is you know material other than grapes it's leaves and petioles and sometimes with the machine harvested fruit it can be lots of other things it can be frogs and it can be spiders or nails or you know all sorts of things but they sort it we sort it all by hand bucket by bucket to make the fruit beautiful and clean before the fermentation starts yeah and then everybody jumps in to the fermentation vats and stomps the grapes, which is always, you know, the favorite, most exciting thing for someone who's never done it before. Mm -hmm. And even for me, I still like to stomp the grapes. It still makes you feel like you're, you know, really involved in the winemaking process. Uh, and then we all when we've done that for the day, we all sit down together and have a meal and, you know, talk about whatever we talk about. We do benchmark tastings during the process so that people can see different expressions of the the first batch we do will be Shiraz. Mm-hmm. So we'll look at a few different Shirazes and talk about why they're different sure. and what we can do to influence that. And depending on what the members prefer and how they think the direction we should take, we sort of discuss that and, you know. Great. Right. Um, we try to to – Cover as much ground as we can in the time that we have, yeah, and you know it's really dependent on the people who are there what how much they want to learn, how many questions they want to ask, how much they want to do. we do it and uh, then two weeks later we have the next event, which is the pressing yeah, so we we take all of the skins and all everything out of the fermentation vats and put it in the basket presses which are all hand-operated as well. Everything's moved just by buckets and people, you know, carrying it back and forth. We press all of the liquid out, all of the wine out from all of the solids, and then we tip it into the barrels just using funnels. And so that's another big day of activity doing that and tasting. And we can taste, we'll have tastings in between those periods as well so people can follow the progress of the mm-hmm. wine. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the year, we'll taste the barrels to see the evolution of the wine. And at the end, we have a big bottling event where everybody comes together and all of the wines for the members are bottled on that day by hand, using gravity, hand corkers, waxing the bottles, putting the labels on. And at the end of that, then the members have the wine that they've made that they can take home and drink.
0: So they get that full, you know, experience of, you know, from from processing the fruit to bottling the wine.
1: Yeah, and drinking it. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, <laughs> and, and, and do they get some wine out of it as well? They do, yeah. They get, as part of their membership, they get half a dozen bottles of wine, which they can choose, usually the wine that they've made. But sometimes if they prefer other wines that <laughs> other groups have made, they yep. can choose that as well. Yeah. Um, but, and then, you know, they have the option to buy – extra wine at the member prices, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so lots of people choose to have some of everything. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, they, you know, hopefully they can have something to be proud of and something that they can enjoy with their friends and, and you know, share the experience that they've, that they've had learning to make wine.
0: And are the wines then made available, you know, as far as retail or... Or,
1: you know, in bars somewhere? Yeah, now all of the wine that's left after the members have all taken what they want at the bottling stage, um, we're making available to local independent retailers and wine bars and restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've started doing that now. You can see Noisy Ritual around the place in Melbourne now and in Geelong.
0: This will be the 2015 vintage wines?
1: Yep, 2015. Yep. So they're bottled relatively early they're intended to be young drinking approachable wines enthusiastic wines enthusiastic wines yeah (laughs) and you know they they are fresh and and sort of vibrant wines they're not really intended to be put in the cellar for a long time no they're intended to be you can make them at the start of the year and you can drink them for christmas at the end of the year yeah okay, and you know so you don't – because it's a long time for a lot of people to wait from when they take their membership no. to when they actually get their wine. Most so.
0: people like that probably wouldn't have the kind of patience like, <laughs> like winemakers do. It's like, I'm going to sit this – this is going to stay in barrel for 18 months. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah.
1: So that's, you know, that's part of it. But that's it. also part of the decisions we make with the the wine making process so yep. that the wine is ready to drink when it's nice and young and, you know, it's it's still – Beautiful, tasty wine that, that you don't have to put in the cellar for 10 years before it reaches its best.
0: Well, it's an exciting project. I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting you know, a chance to see it in action this year. Um, if people are interested in, in finding out more and hopefully uh, buying up some memberships, uh, what's the website and what are the social media um, platforms that people can follow Noisy Ritual on?
1: Uh, the website is noisyritual.com.au and Facebook slash noisy ritual and Instagram and Twitter and all the great things. Mostly, I think, Facebook because Facebook, you know, allows a platform to share large amounts of information with photos and videos. Members and, can
0: post stuff as well. Yeah, and
1: everybody can interact and suggest it to friends and all that sort of thing. So yeah. that seems to be the way that it is mostly happening. And Burn Wines? Burn is. Uh, similar, although not quite as high tech. Uh, <laughs> burnwines.com and. That's B Y R N E. Uh, that's right, yeah. And it's on Facebook, Burn Wines, as well and Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Alex, thank you very much for making some time. I really uh,
0: have enjoyed uh, finding more about yourself and about Burn and about Noisy Ritual as well.
1: Well, thank you, James. It was a pleasure to meet you. My pleasure. The pleasure's mine. <laughs>
0: And I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Vincast. As always, thank you for joining me. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. As mentioned at the start of the episode, for follow, uh, subscribers of the podcast, uh, if you would like to get involved with the Noisy Ritual program for 2016, time is running out, so it really is important that you sign up as soon as possible. But as a special bonus for listeners of the podcast, if you, uh, in this section, when you put in the, the your details in uh, under uh, dietary requirements, uh, enter the code the VINCAST and the guys will give you a special bonus. Uh, for the program, you'll actually get to choose a one bottle of wine from the 2015 program, and that way you'll be able to taste the kind of wines that you'll be involved with making this year. So do get in touch with them. Uh, let them know that you heard about uh, the program via the podcast. Of course, you can follow myself on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at IntrepidWino, and you can find the podcast on Twitter at the Vincast. Facebook.com forward slash IntrepidWino is where you'll find the Facebook page. Uh, The Intrepid Winer channel is where I put all of my Let's Taste videos and I'll actually be uh, tasting one of Alex's wines very soon, so stay tuned for that. Uh, I would love for you to subscribe to the podcast on any number of different uh, podcasting platforms, but particularly uh, on the iTunes or Podcasts app on your iPhone. Uh, if you subscribe, it means you get the new episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and also by leaving a rating and a review, it's a great way to provide feedback about the podcast and also uh, provide some feedback to uh, potential guests and also potential uh, listeners. Uh Please come and visit me at intrepidwino.com. You'll find all the episodes, all of the tasting videos, as well as different writings I've done in the past. And you can also find out how you can get in touch with me. Uh, I look forward to having you on the next episode. But until then, bye.